Welcome to Pop Cultured. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Today, we're going to get started with some of the big stories that are on our minds. This weekend, we finally got a reprieve from the marathon of weddings, the never-ending nuptials of Kourtney Kardashian and Travis Barker. The two fake-tied the knot earlier this year, and then they tied it again two more times just this month. The third wedding in Italy was completely over the top. It was a who's who event that supposedly cost $3.5 million. And for all that money, the guests were served thongs on a plate, very tiny portions of pasta. It was weird. You know who didn't have a quiet weekend? Museums. A man apparently disguised as an old lady in a wheelchair made his way to the front of the crowd and threw a piece of cake at the Mona Lisa painting in the Louvre Museum in Paris. The man reportedly shouted about people destroying the earth after he threw the cake. He was promptly escorted out and the painting will be just fine. It's protected by a glass cover. The environment, on the other hand? Well, at least we have cake. Staying in the museum, a bunch of Basquiat paintings are under investigation. The FBI is investigating the authenticity of 25 paintings that are on display at the Orlando Museum of Art. If they are the real deal, the paintings are worth $100 million. But some of the details of this backstory aren't really adding up. Like Basquiat supposedly used a cardboard FedEx box as a canvas, but the font on a label on one of the boxes apparently wasn't created until years after Basquiat died. I don't know, sounds shady. It is certainly a museum mystery that we'll keep an eye on. If you're going to Sweden anytime soon, be sure to pack a lunch. For days, people on Twitter have been arguing about the Swedish custom of leaving your guests apparently to starve. Someone on Twitter shared a childhood story about going to a friend's house and being asked to wait in the friend's room while their family ate dinner. That tweet blew up and then all kinds of people jumped in with similar experiences. Even some Swedes confirming that this is indeed a thing. The whole fallout's been dubbed Sweden Gate. We've talked a lot on this show about how Netflix is falling off. But this weekend, one of the few things they still have right premiered. Stranger Things Part 1 Season 4 just dropped. Part 2 drops in July. It's the mid-80s and our ragtag team of tiny teens is a little older and their music tastes a little better. And this season gave an old song a new life. Ironically, when one of the characters was trying to save her own. She uses Kate Bush's running up the hill to tether herself to the real world as an underworld demon tries to suck her soul out. The song is from 1985, but now it's a hit all over again. It's currently number one on the iTunes chart. And this is a thing now. We saw the same thing happen with Nirvana's Something in the Way, which showed up in the Batman movie and then surged in the charts. You know you're getting up there when the music you grew up with gets introduced to a new generation via blockbuster soundtrack. Gen X, I'm looking at you. Staying with Stuff to Watch, the first two episodes of the Obi-Wan Kenobi Disney Plus series came out last week. And I just want to know, can we have one premiere, just one Star Wars premiere, without a racist backlash? Actress Moses Ingram is one of the stars of the show. She plays a Jedi hunter inquisitor named Reva, and she's black. And you would think in a fictional sci-fi fantasy world, that wouldn't really matter. But racists always find a reason. Ingram responded to the backlash. 
I think the thing that bothers me is that like sort of this feeling that I've had inside of myself which no one has told me but this feeling of like I just gotta shut up and take it and I'm not built like that. And Disney did issue a statement via the Star Wars Twitter account in support of Ingram. A surprising move because as we talked about on a previous episode Disney has been criticized for not supporting its black Star Wars actors before. We'll see if this faction of fans listens or resists. And finally, a few weeks ago, the New York Senate passed a bill that will make it harder for prosecutors to use rap lyrics against rappers who are charged with crimes. Back in February, we did a whole episode on the rap music on trial bill. That's what it's called. But there is a new case that's renewed our interest in the way lyrics are being used in the courts. Two of the hottest rappers coming out of Atlanta are now in big legal trouble. I run it like Nike, we got it on lock. Young Thug, Gunna, and 26 members of their crew are facing RICO charges in the state of Georgia. Prosecutors allege that the crew, that goes by YSL, is actually a criminal gang. And one of the things prosecutors plan to use to prove that, Young Thug's lyrics. Here's what the Fulton County DA had to say about the potential First Amendment violations that could come up in this case. I believe in the First Amendment. It's one of our most precious rights. However, the First Amendment does not protect people from prosecutors using it as evidence if it is such. In this case, we put it as overt and predicate acts within the RICO count because we believe that's exactly what it is. In other words... There's a First Amendment right to say what you want, how you want, when you want, more or less. But that doesn't give you the right to hide behind that First Amendment when the words you say in your music are actually you recounting the narrative of the crime you committed. J. Christopher Hamilton is an entertainment attorney, professor, and author. We called him up to shed some light on this Young Thug YSL RICO case. First, I asked him to explain what exactly a RICO case is. So the RICO statute came into existence back in the early 70s. The government was trying to crack organized crime, and instead of having to go after the little guy, the flip on the other guy, the flip on the other guy, they said, well, why don't we drag that and get them all at one time? So RICO, technically speaking, is the Racketeering Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act. So what that means basically is if you are the focal point of this act, whether it's a state prosecution or a federal prosecution, there's not a major difference. The goal is to identify a business enterprise that you're engaged in. So you have an entity organization, right? And this organization is engaging in corrupt or um, illegal activity on a consistent basis. And members of the organization benefit from that activity. So, for example, members of a gang sell drugs and keep the profits for themselves. It's a consistent practice of criminal activity through the organization, right, that the members benefit from. And in addition to that, you have to be able to show that there was some intent and conspiracy. It was a conspiracy to commit crime. And you have to have two predicate felonies in addition to that to show that this is not a one-off act of crime or criminality, but there's a, a pattern here. So they have to establish that there was organized crime that was consistent and beneficial to the people accused. But what does that mean when it comes to Young Thug, Gunna, and the rest of YSL? So when we look at the list of things he's been engaged in and involved in, not to mention the feds raided his house and recovered more drugs, more guns, you have a number of incidences where he has been found 
to have in his possession illegal substances, illegal firearms on the phone, potentially cooperating or working with hitmen to take out a rival. So on the face of things, the feds would have a really nice legal case against him for sure, right, as one of the members of the crew. Prosecutors claim Young Thug and his associates did all of this and more, and we'll have to see if they can prove the case. But in the meantime, a lot of people are questioning the ethics of RICO cases in light of these recent arrests. Even when Congress promulgated or created this, this act, there was question of whether or not this was too broad and abusive and exploitive. But the reality was when this act came into existence, organized crime had the country in a stranglehold and people were fearful of you know, their livelihood and their lives and, and the expansion of, of the mob. So the government wasn't so concerned about trampling upon freedoms of other people. There's definitely been history where this RICO statute has been used in hip hop community. And it's a very, very effective tool to apply pressure to a group of individuals who are working together because it's inevitable what's going to happen. Takashi 69, somebody's going to flip, right? And I think that's really part of the strategy here. Cast a broad net, get people who aren't really that uh, culpable, but feel as they're being railroaded and have them talk. We'll just have to wait and see if that will be the case here. We've been thinking about the way creative expression is used in courtrooms for a while. The last time we talked about this was in February, when New York was first considering the bill. The Rap Music on Trial bill actually aims to protect all forms of artistic expression from being used in courts. But there is a reason why it focuses on hip-hop in particular. Rappers oftentimes are stigmatized by the music they create, right? Because a number of rappers live the life and quote-unquote rap about it. Now, in theory, there shouldn't be any issue with that, right? Because you have two different things happening. You have the street life and then you have entertainment. But when it comes to rap, the criminal justice system hasn't always done a good job of distinguishing between real crimes and entertainment. Rappers talk about the neighborhoods they live in and situations they see or hear about. And a lot of times, they take on personas and talk about these things in the first person. Sometimes it's from their personal experiences, and sometimes it's just observations. But rap lyrics have been used as evidence and as a basis for investigation in cases against everyone from Snoop Dogg to Bobby Schmurter to a lot of other rappers you've probably never heard of. But rappers aren't the only artists who depict violence and drugs in their music. Violent lyrics show up in rock and roll songs, the blues, and country. When Carrie Underwood said she took a Louisville slugger to both headlights, it didn't prompt the police to open an investigation for property damage. But when it comes to hip-hop, there have been investigations that were at least in part prompted by something a rapper said on a song. Like the case of Antoine Stewart in Newport News, Virginia. In 2013, Stewart was charged with a double murder that had happened six years before. The thing that tipped off authorities about Stewart was a rap he'd written that was going viral in his hometown. In the song, Stewart references a murder, but the details didn't really line up with the double murder he was being investigated for. But that didn't stop the police from using those lyrics as evidence of a confession and charging Stewart with the murders. Ultimately, the lyrics weren't the focus of the trial, and Stewart was found not guilty of murder. He was convicted on a weapons charge. But the whole reason authorities even suspected him is because of lyrics he performed. 
It's hard to say that this has never happened with country music or other genres. But we do know there are a lot of examples of violent lyrics that describe murders that show up in blues, folk, rock and roll, and country music. There's even a style of song that's very old called the murder ballad. And murder ballads are pretty popular in country and folk music. There are some classic examples like Johnny Cash's I Shot a Man in Reno. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. The protagonist in Waylon Jennings' Cedartown, GA, plotted the murder of his cheating wife. I made up my mind what I'm gonna do. He's in the pawn shop and bought a 22. Willie Nelson has a whole album about a murderer, Redheaded Stranger. The songs aren't written in first person, but they're pretty violent. And it's revealed that the protagonist more than likely killed his wife and her lover. And they died with their smiles on their faces. Cody Johnson has a more recent song called Guilty As Can Be, in which the protagonist confesses to killing his wife's side piece. Said I ain't the kind to hurt a woman and I hope you understand. Somebody's got to die today, son, it looks like you're the man. And it's not just the men. Women in country and folk music have flipped the murder ballot to kill cheating and abusive husbands, like Miranda Lambert's Gunpowder and Lead. And in The Barnyard, Rachel Brooks sings about killing her best friend in front of her husband because she suspected the two were having an affair. It must have been There are so many examples of murder ballads throughout country, blues, folk, and rock and roll. But rarely do you see those artists being investigated as criminals. Most people understand that the lyrics are just for entertainment, even if they seem to justify violence against women or murder as a solution to a cheating spouse. But when it comes to hip-hop, because so much of it is based on the credibility of the rapper themselves, People, especially prosecutors, have had a hard time distinguishing between lyrics as art and lyrics as evidence. The ACLU found that 80% of the criminal cases between 2006 and 2013 that involved rap furs and rap lyrics, rap lyrics were used in those trials. So this is not something that's happening every now and then. It's not something that's happening on occasion. This is something that is a tool of prosecutors and law enforcement to, quote-unquote, lock up criminals that are rappers opposing as rappers. Before we get into individual cases or what the Rap Music on Trial Bill is proposing, we need to go back and understand how rap and hip-hop as a genre has been criminalized since the early days of the art form. Today, we have trap music, but back in the late 80s, there was gangster rap. Made popular by West Coast rappers like Ice-T, N.W.A., Snoop Dogg, and Tupac. And almost from the beginning, gangster rap sparked moral panic from politicians and community leaders who were largely outside of the culture. Cop Killer is a song Ice-T recorded with his rock band Body Count. The song was technically a metal song, 
but because Ice-T was known as a rapper, it's often referred to as a rap song. Government officials spoke out against the song, and authorities in Florida even wanted to charge Ice-T with treason. NWA's F the Police is probably one of the most recognizable modern protest songs. And it's also one of the most infamous from the gangster rap era. The FBI sent NWA a strongly worded letter in response to the song. And in 1989, members of the group were actually arrested in Detroit for performing the song. By the early 90s, there were full-on protests and campaigns against gangster rap led largely by Black community leaders who felt the music was violent and painted Black folks in stereotypical ways and disrespected women. One of the most vocal anti-gangster rap activists was C. Dolores Tucker. I am here to put the nation on notice that violence perpetuated against women through the music industry in the forms of gangster rap and misogynist lyrics will not be tolerated any longer. Tucker had been a prominent activist in the civil rights movement in the 60s and served as Secretary of State in Pennsylvania in the 70s. But by the 90s, she turned her focus to gangster rap and calling rappers out by name. And that includes all this gangster rap and misogynist lyrics. Music that glorifies and promotes violence with guns, knives, or drugs and denigrates and defames women. And with the release of Snoop Doggy Dog's debut album, Doggy Style, (laughs) that includes artwork that is nothing but pornographic smut available to any child. And in turn, the rappers also called her out. Tucker led protests against gangster rap and most notably argued that it wasn't free speech or artistic expression. Obscenity has long been an exception to free speech. If the filth that is portrayed in these gangster rap videos and art is not obscene, then I submit that nothing is obscene. And there were a lot of other protests in which people from both sides of the argument showed up. We will not stand for the vile, ugly, low, grime, abusive, and rough music. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. And music is not the killer. It's not the ill. The ill is the streets that we are forced to live like rats on. The ill is the projects we are forced to live in. I live here where I see babies having babies. I see pregnant mothers using drugs. This is what I talk about. In 1994, the Senate held a hearing led by Senator Carol Mosley Braun to determine whether gangster rap was sparking violence or just a reflection of what was happening in the neighborhoods it came from. Are you seriously suggesting that the vulgar lyrics in gangster rap, or whatever you want to call it, plays no part at all in the further disintegration of morals and ethics in our society? And somebody in the first panel mentioned, you know, whether we were talking about a chicken-eggs approach. What is your response to that? I'm not saying it doesn't have any bearings on the problems in our society, but it appears as though a finger is being pointed at rap music. That question, whether rap and rappers are the problem or just a symptom of the problem, is the basis for how rap went from being something that was scrutinized to something that was used against rappers personally. Remember, Snoop Dogg was one of the rappers who was called out by activists like C. Dolores Tucker. Well, in 1993, Snoop and one of his bodyguards were charged with the murder of a rival gang member. Snoop's bodyguard pulled the trigger and claimed it was self-defense. But in the trial, 
They used his lyrics in his trial to try to convict him. In the case, prosecutors didn't use lyrics as evidence of a confession. But they did play Snoop's song, Murder Was the Case, in which he raps about being convicted of murder during the closing arguments. He beat the case because he had expensive lawyers and a really solid defense. My point is, his lifestyle and what he rapped about, his brand, was being used, and it's always going to be used to, quote-unquote, enslave us in the criminal justice system. That's what That's the game. And lyrics aren't just used during trials. As we heard with the Antoine Stewart case, Rap lyrics often factor in way before a defendant even sees a courtroom. It's not just about prosecutors prosecuting rappers in criminal court using their lyrics. These lyrics are used all the time outside of court as the basis for arrest warrants, as the basis for investigations, as basis for all types of things before you even get to court. And there's a number of examples where this has happened with notable people in music. Young Dolph, Baby Rest in Peace, they use Dolph's bulletproof mixtape, the lyrics from the mixtape, as a basis for a warrant to arrest Black youngster. Young Dolph is a Memphis rapper who died last year. Before his death, he had an ongoing beef with another Memphis rapper, Black Youngster. In 2017, after a show in Charlotte, Dolph's SUV was shot at over 100 times. He survived the attack and suspected Black Youngster being behind it. And he alluded to as much on his mixtape, Bulletproof. How the fuck you miss a whole hundred shots? An arrest warrant was issued for Black Youngster in connection to the shooting. And his lawyer said the warrant mentioned the bulletproof mixtape is one of the bases for arrest. Another prominent case that used the rapper's lyrics or image against him, Takashi 69 You may recall Takashi 69s situation with the gang set he was a part of. I think it was a blood set in the the authorities attempt to convict this blood that they're using music videos and the antics of the uh, gang members in the videos as a means to convict them in court. In that case, Takashi had become affiliated with the Nine Trade Gangsters, and his lyrics were used to put pressure on him to turn state's witness against members of the organization. You may know Boozy was in, on trial for murder. Little Boozy, we all know Little Boozy, Baton Rouge. He, in his trial, the authorities were using raps that he created around the time of the death of someone they were trying to put on him as him, him um, ordering the hit on. They were using his lyrics that he recorded around the time of this man being killed as a means to, again, convict him of uh, the crime that he was being um, charged with. In Lil Boosie's case, he was charged with ordering and paying for the murder of someone. And during the trial, the prosecution mentioned lyrics of his that used the terms 187, Merc, and Cape, words that mean money and murder. Now, those are a few examples of how rap lyrics are used against famous rappers. But most of the time, prosecutors and investigators use lyrics against small-time rappers, like in the 2014 case, New Jersey versus Vontae Skinner. In that case, the defendant was a rapper and low-level drug dealer who was charged with the attempted murder of another drug dealer. During his trial, prosecutors had a police officer take the stand and read aloud 13 pages of Skinner's lyrics. The lyrics were violent and depicted gang life, but they didn't mention or reference the crime he was being charged with. And they were written before the crime even took place. Skinner was convicted of attempted murder, but on appeal, the Supreme Court of New Jersey overturned the ruling, saying the reading of the lyrics had unfairly prejudiced the jury against him. 
Here's what the judge said in that ruling. We hold that violent and profane and disturbing rap lyrics that defendant wrote constituted highly prejudicial evidence against him that bore little to no probative value, meaning it wasn't really relevant, so bore little to no probative value on any motive or intent. So they incorporated this music. It was irrelevant to his motive or intent behind the attempted murder offense which he was charged. Less prejudicial evidence was available by the state on both motive and intent. So basically, the state could have done something other than use his music. The mission of the defendant's rap writings, right, he wrote a, a little rap book, for a high likelihood of poisoning the jury against the defendant, notwithstanding the trial court's limiting instruction. So again, this is a situation where the court, in a positive outcome, said, hey, you incorporated something that was going to prejudice the defendant. You could have used evidence other than his rap music, but you didn't. We're going to overturn the, the judgment and, and throw it out. The judge also added this anecdote. One cannot presume that simply because an author has chosen to write about a certain topic, he or she has acted in accordance with those views. The court noted that no one believes that Bob Marley actually shot the sheriff or that there's a man buried in Edgar Allan Poe's floorboards. Again, my little footnote with this, I just think it's important for context here. Yeah. However, if Bob Marley was known to be a mass murderer, we might think he, he did it. Or if Edgar Allan Poe was known to be a serial killer, then yeah, maybe we want to, you know, use those lyrics. So again, I think context is important. As it stands now, rap lyrics are supposed to be protected by the First Amendment. And there's also a standard of evidence that in theory should protect a defendant. That's not what always happens. When it comes to a criminal trial and you're incorporating evidence in a criminal trial, the evidence has to be relevant, obviously, probative, that's the, the key term, but you can introduce evidence of a person's bad acts as a means of making an argument that they did it again. So for example, this person is a loser or low life, doesn't pay their bills on time, just has a bad reputation, and I wanna show all of those things and incorporate all that into this trial to prove they did this crime. That's wrong, you can't do that. You can incorporate things that speak to the intent and the motive. But what's, what's happening is the rap lyrics are being used on, on the one hand, in theory, to connect with the intent and motive. But the reality is they're really using it as behavior that would make the jury believe this person did this crime. The rap music on trial bill aims to make that harder for prosecutors to do. When it comes to rap lyrics based on this legislation, what they're trying to implement is there's a presumption of inadmissibility, meaning automatically out the gate, the music is not allowed based on what the legislation is proposing. With the new legislation, prosecutors would have to demonstrate that there's a clear and direct connection between the lyrics and the case before they could even introduce the lyrics as evidence. Now, the prosecution has to prove affirmatively that if they're going to use rap lyrics, that the lyrics are literal, right? It is literally describing a criminal act. And then it has to show that there's a nexus, meaning a connection between the lyrics and the actual criminality. So, for example, I'm a rapper and I rapped about, yo, I shot him in the head last night, my, my 45 Magnum. And then I'm being prosecuted for shooting someone in the head last night with a 45 Magnum. Clearly, there's a nexus between the lyrics. There's a likelihood that 
they could prove that I'm being literal in my description of what happened. So that would be the standard under which the lyrics could be used based on this new legislation. So prosecutors could no longer use lyrics that talk about violence, selling drugs, or gang life generally to prove a rapper's character or intent on a specific crime. The lyrics have to explicitly link to the crime in question. Now, that's a very, very high standard. I mean, proving someone is being literal, obviously, is, a, is quite a, a, a feat to try to accomplish, as well as drawing a nexus between what is being said in the lyrics and what actually happened. There's another thing the lyrics have to prove under this new legislation. There's also an expectation that the lyrics have probative value. That means the lyrics, as evidence, have to be relevant and influential in making the case that the crime took place. So just because someone raps about committing a crime and the crime happens, under this legislation, you would have to prove that they're rapping about that specific crime in particular. Another thing the bill wants to change is the prosecution's ability to prejudice the jury against the defendant. Under this new bill, prosecutors would have to get a judge's sign-off before they could play or recite lyrics in court. The lyrics have to be disclosed outside the earshot of the jury, meaning the jurors can't hear this music. This has to be in closed session with the judge and the prosecutors. So not to taint the, the jury's perception, obviously, uh, of what, whether this person was uh, guilty of the crime. So all of those things are, are, are really high standards when it comes to criminal justice. Proponents of the bill say it's needed because hip-hop lyrics are disproportionately used against rappers who are often Black and Latino. And the bill is a big deal for that because it could potentially establish a new really high bar that prosecutors have to clear before they could even use rap lyrics in a trial. Prosecutors have been grossly discriminated against defendants by claiming there's a valid nexus between the speech sought to be incorporated into evidence and the crime alleged. But they're abusing it because it's, they haven't been establishing their nexus appropriately. So the bill is looking to really add some teeth. But I think the biggest piece of the, the takeaway from this bill that I think is really important because it really is the high, the, the high standard that the bill is trying to set is Remember, it is presumed inadmissible. That's the biggest piece. But for some people, that presumed inadmissibility for all rap lyrics is the issue. Because some cases aren't as clear-cut as the ones we've mentioned. Like the case of Montague versus the state of Maryland. In that case, the defendant, Lawrence Montague, was charged with the murder of a man who attempted to buy cocaine from him with a counterfeit bill. He leaves the scene, but later gets arrested. Now, while he's in prison... He says, well, let me get on uh, the phone and rap about snitching and things I'm going to do to snitches on social media live. Montague recorded a verse from the jail phone that was later uploaded to Instagram. In the rap, he talks about shooting someone, references a 40 caliber gun, the same kind of gun that was used in the crime, and threatened to kill any snitches. There was one witness who claimed to have seen the murder. Ultimately, prosecutors used the Instagram rap in the trial, and Montague was convicted of second-degree murder. His lawyers tried to appeal the decision, saying the lyrics prejudiced the jury against Montague, but the Maryland Court of Appeals sided with the original conviction and ruled that, in this case, rap lyrics can be used as evidence. Critics of the decision said the ruling was racist and set a dangerous precedent. But for lawyer and longtime fan J. Christopher Hamilton, it's complicated. I have a personal connection 
to this world because look, I'm a con- I'm a consumer of hip hop music. I grew up on quote unquote gangster rap, and um, and I still listen to the music today. I, I I'm very connected to it, not just from a an academic or legal standpoint, but from a personal interest standpoint. The thing is this, if you are in the street committing crime and then rapping about it, I don't know if I have a lot of um, concern or, or, or compassion for you because you're clearly a bad criminal, one, number one, and number two, you're not using any kind of proper judgment if you're telling people what you're doing in your music. And on top of that, you a danger to society. I don't want to live next door to you. I don't want to stop at the gas station and be next to you. So, so, so that's a dynamic. I don't want to just kind of brush all criminal, um, all potential defendants and rappers who are industries and doing drugs and I mean selling drugs and shooting people as being people that we need to protect. But I do want to protect the individuals that are quote unquote just rapping about it because they used to do it or rapping about it because they aspire to do it. And I think that's what Jay Z and these others are trying to do. They're trying to protect quote unquote, the innocent and not use um, this as a way to get away with doing more dirt in the street. The rap music on trial bill was passed by the New York Senate. Now it heads to the New York State Assembly for a vote. And that's it for us today. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. And I work with a great team to make the show every week. The show's producer is Alicia Key. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. He had help from Ellie McAfee-Hahn. Raylan Brashear is our senior director of audio. Big thanks to Jay Christopher Hamilton for talking to us. We'll have a link in the show notes to his website. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend.